you. I'm Edwina, of course. It's great to meet you. Thanks so much for having me. Sure. Meet Edwina Williams. She's a retired police detective in her late 50s with long braided hair and a thing for Billie Holiday. Edwina lives in a mint green row house in Petworth with a big front porch. So I grew up right here in this home, in this neighborhood. I wanted to start off this series, 51st, with Edwina's voice. She is such a Washingtonian, from her love of jazz to her neighborhood roots. Well, my family uh, first came to D.C. were a part of the wave of the Great Migration from the South. My aunt moved to Washington, D.C. first, and um, she and my uncle lived here, um, cousins, sisters, um, just a bunch of cousins. As a matter of fact, People thought we were all siblings because today they will ask me, hey, how's your cousin so-and-so? No, how's your sister so-and-so? How's your brother so-and-so? And some people, I'm like, That's, that was my cousin. She loves this city, plans to stay in her house forever. But when people in other parts of the country think of Washington, D.C., they often don't think of Edwina or her cousins and brothers and sisters. They see a politician power walking through the Capitol building or a fancy K Street lobbyist who moved here a year ago from New York or something. Or they see a radical protester. I'm not making these stereotypes up. They're everywhere, including in the mouths of U.S. senators and representatives. Washington doesn't have the size or diversity of interest of even the smallest of the 50 states. By far, the largest group of workers in the city are bureaucrats and other white-collar professionals. But that's not the Washingtonian Edwina knows. There are a lot of residents born and reared here that are still here. All quadrants of the city. They weren't just newbies just coming for federal jobs or whatever job. No, they've been here for years and years, like myself. Edwina shares D.C. with more than 700,000 other residents. But when she goes to vote in November, and she always votes, she tells me, she can't cast a ballot for a senator. D.C. doesn't have any. And the laws she votes for, well, there's always the chance that Congress will block them. Because D.C., the District of Columbia, is not a state. It's so sad, even to this day, to realize that we don't have statehood. Statehood is significant. I've lived in and reported on D.C. for about a decade now, and I grew up just over the border in Virginia. I realized recently that I don't really know what got us into this situation in the first place. What exactly is the District of Columbia? Why is it set up the way it is? Why don't Edwita and I have the same representation in Congress as people in Virginia or Oklahoma? And in this hyper-partisan time we live in, how do we move forward? How do we fix this? I'm Michaela LaFrac. From the WAMU producers that bring you What's With Washington, this is 51st, a six-episode series about Washingtonians' fight for representation. We've received a lot of questions from our listeners about D.C. statehood, so we're setting aside a whole season to answer them. 51st will go back in time to look at the origins of the nation's capital. We'll trace how racism and party politics have stood in the way of the city's path to representation. And we'll try to figure out if DC has any real chance at achieving statehood today. 
People in D.C. have been pushing for change since the district was founded more than 200 years ago. It's always been under the thumb of the federal government, and it took a lot to get what we have today, a mayor and a city council. They set our budget and create our laws. But Congress has the right to futz with that budget and nullify those laws. And it has. Just Google D.C. abortion funding, gun control, marijuana legalization. And we'll get into those issues more in a few episodes. Even though D.C. doesn't have senators or representatives who can vote on the federal budget, D.C. residents pay more in federal taxes than around two dozen other states. That's why our license plates say, end taxation without representation. There's a reason What's With Washington is focused on statehood right now. In the spring and summer of 2020, D.C. residents witnessed how the federal government could challenge our local rules and life in a whole new way. No justice! No peace! No justice! No peace! After the police killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, protests against police violence start to grow. People all over the U.S. hit the streets. Some of the biggest protests in the country happen right here in Lafayette Square, right next to the White House. We are bringing you live team coverage tonight of the continued protests in our region. Lafayette Square continues to be ground zero for those protesting the death of George Floyd. Holly Moore spending- Militarized police and the National Guard have poured into Washington over the past few days, and active duty troops are also on standby. President Trump defended his law and order. Process. Soon, law enforcement blocks off Lafayette Square. But protesters keep showing up with their signs and their bullhorns and their chants. There is some property destruction around the city, mostly broken windows. And that makes some people nervous. Store owners start boarding up windows. Still, D.C.'s mayor, Muriel Bowser, says she has everything under control. Police and firefighters and members of the public safety team uh, for Washington, D.C., along with our federal partners, uh, have uh, been uh, working to make sure that people can exercise their First Amendment rights while not destroying Washington, D.C. Bowser puts a 7 p.m. curfew in place on Monday, June 1st. That's the night that these protests become not just about police brutality, but also about D.C.'s right to self-govern. Here's what happens next. Around 6.30 that night, National Guardsmen, Secret Service, and U.S. Park Police start advancing towards the protesters who are near Lafayette Park. The demonstrators are kind of confused. There are 30 minutes left until curfew, and everything's peaceful. Then federal law enforcement officers in gas masks start firing rubber bullets and pepper balls at demonstrators. The air starts to sting and burn, and protesters turn and run. Why was this happening? About 15 minutes later, President Donald Trump begins to give a speech in the Rose Garden about the protests. My fellow Americans, my first and highest duty as president is to defend our great country and the American people. I swore an oath to uphold He talks about rioting and angry nation. mobs and, and the need exactly for law and order. I will do. As we speak, I am dispatching thousands and thousands of heavily armed soldiers military personnel and law enforcement officers to stop the rioting, looting, vandalism, assaults, and the wanton destruction of property. 
Then at 7 p.m., he walks from the White House across Lafayette Square and the now empty street to St. John's Episcopal Church. It's a little yellow historic church right by the White House. Protesters had set fire to its basement the previous night. Trump stands on the church's steps and holds up a Bible while the news cameras click. People here are shocked. The president used law enforcement officers to clear peaceful protesters from assembling well before their curfew. And all, it seems, for a photo op. Later that night, military helicopters fly low over the city to disperse the demonstrators, who are now more upset than ever. a lot of protests in D.C., and this felt different than anything I'd experienced before. I kept thinking to myself, how far could they take this? Were First Amendment rights in D.C. about to disappear? I watched as police put up concrete barriers and black fences around the public parks near the White House. National Guardsmen were stationed on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, like in some dystopian movie. I know that federal law enforcement gets involved in all sorts of things. Shutting down protests, yes, but also supporting school integrations. Still, it was all too easy to draw a line from what happened at Lafayette Square to the need for statehood. And people did. The day after Trump's photo op in front of the church, Mayor Bowser opens her press conference like this. Let me just start with this. Um, Sometimes when we talk about statehood, people wonder why we fight so hard for it. Uh, and I think that the events of the last several days demonstrate that our fight for statehood is more than about getting two senators, um, but it's also about our right as taxpaying Americans uh, to autonomy and the autonomy that can only be fully achieved with statehood. When we come back, statehood makes its way to Congress. The United States is the only democratic country that denies both voting rights in, in its national legislature and local autonomy to the residents of its nation's capital. Hi, it's Diane. The next meeting of my book club is on Wednesday, May 31st at 1 p.m. Eastern. I'll host a discussion of Mad Honey by Jody Pico and Jennifer Finney Boylan, followed by a conversation with the authors. Find out more and register at dianereem.org slash book club. Long before the protests, Eleanor Holmes Norton was thinking about ways to get the District of Columbia more autonomy and representation. My job is actually the same as others. Norton's great-grandfather escaped from slavery in Virginia and ran to Washington, D.C. Now she serves as D.C.'s delegate to Congress. She's had the job since 1991. She's sort of like your regular member of Congress. She can be on committees and she can introduce bills. And she has. But there's one huge difference between Norton and the 435 representatives from states. Norton can't vote on anything. 
not even her own bills. Where I differ is on that final vote on the House floor. And of course, that's why people come to Congress. For three decades, Norton has been trying to inch D.C. closer to equal rights. Every time her bills get chipped apart or someone tacks on an extraneous piece of legislation called a rider that makes them just about impossible to pass. In 2009, for example, Norton introduced a bill to grant D.C. a vote in the House. Then Republicans tacked on a rider that would have repealed all of D.C.'s gun laws. That was unsuccessful. That left only one viable choice, statehood itself. So at this point, she decides no more baby steps. She's pushing for full statehood. Then something happens that proves her point in a major way, the coronavirus pandemic. In March, the federal government passes a bill giving money to all the states and the district for COVID relief. You might know it as the CARES Act. But here's the rub. When the Senate's version of the bill came out, it turned out that D.C. got totally screwed. They got a little bit more than half of the money that all of the states got. Rachel Curzius is a senior editor at DCist. The states got more than $1 billion, about $1.25 billion at least. D.C. got around $700 million. So that's a lot less, even though D.C. has a population greater than two states. And at the time that all of this aid was coming out, D.C. had more positive COVID-19 cases than more than a dozen states and all of the territories. So how did lawmakers make that decision? How did they defend it? I think that it's clear to note that it happened in the Senate, right, which is run by Republicans. And what they basically said was, we didn't treat D.C. like a state because it's not a state. It's not personal. It's not partisan. D.C. just isn't a state. That's certainly not the usual practice. D.C. is often treated like a state when it comes to federal funding for highways, for education. But in this case, they were not given that treatment. And that was really the only excuse because it didn't have to do with how many people live there. It didn't have to do with how many people have confirmed cases of COVID-19. It was literally just basically pointing at this definition and saying, we can do this and we will do this. And because D.C. doesn't have any representation in the Senate, there was no one who could stand up and say, hey, these are my residents you're screwing over. So from your perspective, how did people living in D.C. react? Were they outraged? I bet it put the lack of statehood into sharp relief for a lot of D.C. residents. The thing about that is it doesn't matter. D.C. residents have almost no power over whether statehood passes or not. The whole sticky wicket we're in is that in order to get these rights, they need to be granted by other people who aren't personally impacted by this disenfranchisement. So that means Edwina and me and you, we really didn't have a say in any of this. But I'm curious about the rest of the country. Do you think the situation with COVID showed people outside the district how important this issue is? I mean, do you think people in a swing district were looking at D.C.'s COVID funding and are going to base their vote in Congress or in the Senate off of that? I don't think so. I'm willing to be proven wrong, but... 
I, I just don't see that happening. I mean, I think we can barely remember what's happening in our own districts on any given day, let alone a kind of complicated funding situation in Washington, D.C. in March. This is a fair point. Most voters in the 50 states probably don't make their ballot decisions based on D.C. funding issues. But for Eleanor Holmes Norton, coronavirus relief was more fuel for the fire. She has this new statehood bill she's pushing, and it attracts historic levels of support. It goes to the House floor for a vote on June 26, 2020. H.R. 51, a bill to provide for the admission of the state of Washington, D.C. into the union. Norton opens the session with a statement. She wears a crisp white blazer, like suffragists before her, and a red lapel pin that says 51st. The United States is the only democratic country that denies both voting rights in, in its national legislature and local autonomy to the residents of its nation's capital. As we approach July 4th, it is long past time to apply the nation's oldest slogan, no taxation without representation, and the principle of consent of the governed to District of Columbia residents. The voting takes about 30 minutes. I inform the House that Representative Kirkpatrick will vote aye on H.R. I inform the House that Mr. Serrano will vote yay on H.R. That Mr. Garamendi will vote yay on H.R. I inform the House that Mr. Desanye will vote yay on H.R. 51. There being 232 votes in the affirmative, 180 votes in the negative, the District of Columbia Statehood Bill, H.R. 51, is passed without objection. Motion to reconsider is laid upon the table. June 26th is a triumph for Norton. It's the first time in D.C.'s 230-year history that a statehood bill passes the House of Representatives. But of course, it's just one step in the fight. The bill still needs to get voted on in the Senate, and that one's going to be tough. Would you trust Mayor Bowser to keep Washington safe if she were given the powers of a governor? Would you trust Marion Barry? More important, should we risk the safety of our capital on such a gamble. I can promise you this, from a South Carolina point of view, this is not a good deal for us. Being two of 50 is better than being two of 52. I listened to Speaker Pelosi, uh, who I respect, talk about it has nothing to do with, uh, you know, with disenfranchisement or enfranchisement. That's a bunch of bull and she knows it. This proposal is plainly nothing but a democratic power grab. People who see D.C. statehood as a democratic power grab are a big problem for Washingtonians, who really just want their voice to count exactly the same as any other American, Republican or Democrat. A lot of statehood advocates I spoke to say it's a moral issue, not a political one. And some historians I spoke to agree. They say this is a problem the Founding Fathers knew about, but never got around to figuring out. And it helps me to understand D.C. today by looking at what life was like for those early Washingtonians. It's not that they never had the right to vote. It's that the right to vote that they did enjoy was then stripped away. 
Chris Ash is one of the authors of the book Chocolate City, a history of race and democracy in the nation's capital. He explains the founding fathers made D.C. by kind of Dr. Frankensteining it out of a hunk of Maryland and a chunk of Virginia. So D.C. residents who lived in on the Maryland side of the Potomac voted in Maryland. They would go on up to Bladensburg, Maryland. They would cast their ballots. They cast their ballots in the election of 1800. <clears throat> Those who lived on the Virginia side of the Potomac cast their ballots in Alexandria. That was, you know, they were voting American citizens. When the Founding Fathers established D.C. as the seat of the new U.S. government, residents, or at least white landowning male residents, just kept on voting, same as they had when their homes were in Maryland or Virginia. But over the next 200 years, Congress stripped away the city's right to self-govern until we got to where we are today. So in effect, if D.C. were to get statehood or some form of of national representation, it would be a reestablishment of a lost or a stolen right. Know about you, but I always thought that if DC gets representation, we'd be gaining something we never had. It feels different to think of it as something that was lost a long time ago. It actually makes it sting even more. Why did the founding fathers set up their brand new democracy like this? How did Washingtonians start fighting back? And how did my producer and I manage to work a song from Hamilton into this series? All those questions and more in our next episode. Fifty First is produced by me, Michaela Lafrac, and senior producer Ponce Rutch. Additional production comes from the WAMU podcast team, Ruth Tam, Patrick Fort, and John Clinton Hill. Mike Kidd mixed this episode. Our chief content officer, Mona Cashfi, oversees all the content we make at WAMU. A special thanks to Daniela Cheslow, who recorded the helicopter audio we used in this episode, and to all of our reporters who covered the protests in June. If you're as excited to talk about D.C. statehood as we are, hit that subscribe button right now. And then go snatch your friend's phone and subscribe them, too. Then you should probably give their phone back. We'll be back next week with the second episode of 51st. Thanks for listening. Listening.